0: This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast number 89. Today we share an encore podcast with one of our top, top listened to podcasts of all times, featuring Dr. Miguel Paniagua's personal and professional story about clinician burnout and resilience, including doing work to decrease stress for medical students going through high-stake exams. We reached out to him for some updates since that episode aired January 1st, 2020, and we are happy to report that there's been progress, and we will put a link in the show notes that shares a new policy to improving testing for medical students. In his own experience as a palliative care physician, it has been a gut-wrenching experience to watch the COVID-19 virus indiscriminately ravage families and persons young and old, His wife is also on the front lines of COVID, and they worry daily about their patients, their own health, and that of their families, with the seemingly never-ending disease burden and the exposure that all providers face. Miguel also volunteered to be in the clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccine, so of course we wanted to know what that experience was like for him, and he said... When I first signed up, there were so many unknowns. It was like jumping in feet first to a, in a pool full of water, not knowing what was just below the surface. It was nerve-wracking. Even my wife chose not to enroll in the trial. Just in case something happens to you, we don't want to orphan the children. We knew that it was we knew that was extreme and not fully rational, but still was stressful to think of the possibilities. I felt a duty as a provider, especially as a Latino, to be a good example for those that were nervous about it, ultimately, and especially those who are most adversely affected by this disease, which is people of color and also contribute to the science. Dr. Paniwago did find out that he did receive the actual vaccine in the blinded study, and he will continue in the trial to periodically report symptoms, or possible exposures until the end of this study period, which lasts two years. So he's sort of a hero of ours, and we just want to say kudos to you, Miguel, and we are thrilled to share your podcast episode as an encore episode.
1: Welcome to the Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast. We're so grateful you've joined us today. I'm Tracy. And I'm Michelle. We've been interprofessional partners in healthcare for over 30 years. During
0: that time, we've been engaged in healthcare transformation and the development of healthy healing work cultures that result in the best places to give and receive care. We've engaged with healthcare leaders from across North America, and we are tired of seeing time, money, and
1: resources wasted on change efforts that are not sustainable. In this podcast, we explore significant, reoccurring, and competing challenges faced by all healthcare leaders today using a brand new lens called polarity thinking, the missing logic in healthcare. You could say we represent the money ball of healthcare. We're here to expand your current thinking and challenge your reliance on problem-solving tactics. This is Tracy.
0: And this is Michelle. Welcome to 2020.
1: Yeah. Can't think of a better way to get started.
0: Me either. Me either. You want to hear about our first interview of the new year? Yeah. Well, it was with Dr. Miguel Paniagua.
1: And it was amazing. What a great guy. He is. He is. Just very down to earth, very open. You know, I just really enjoyed our conversation with him. And I think everybody else is going to too.
0: Yeah, every interaction I've had with him, I felt that way, so was just thrilled when he accepted the invitation to share his story on our podcast and the work that he's doing.
1: Yeah, and he's really um, a real advocate, you know, not just for clinician well-being, but for interprofessional practice, which, right, is,
0: Well, we, we know how you feel about that. Well, you
1: know, <laughs> like, what more can I say? <laughs>
0: So we know that you are all going to really enjoy this first podcast of the year, and uh, we would like to introduce them to you. So Dr. Miguel Paniagua uh, received his undergraduate degree from St. Louis University before receiving his medical degree at the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Chicago. Dr. Paniagua completed his internal medicine residency in gerontology and geriatric medicine fellowship at the University of Washington in Seattle. After four years on the faculty at the Miller School of Medicine at the University of Miami, he gets around a little bit. He does. He then served as the internal medicine residency program director at St. Louis University's School of Medicine for five years prior to joining the staff of the National Board of Medical Examiners. In addition to teaching awards, while a faculty member Miguel is a forum member representative to the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine's Global Forum on Innovations in Health Professions Education and a member of the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society. He is a fellow of the American College of Physicians
1: and the College of Physicians of Philadelphia. Wow. Wow. Now, Dr. Paniagua currently serves as a medical advisor for solutions design and delivery at the National Board of Medical Examiners. Now, his work at NBME includes the development of novel assessments, consulting and teaching, and work on patient characteristics and wellness and burnout. Dr. Paniagua has served on multiple item writing and reviewing committees at the NBME over the last 10 years, and he's also served as a representative member of the National Board from 2011 to 2014, and on the Executive Board from 2013 to 2014. Now, this is just one accomplished man. Yeah. Wow. Now, he practices consultative hospital and palliative medicine at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. So, in addition, he's still Mm -hmm. at the bedside. Wow. And is an adjunct professor of medicine in the faculty of the Pearlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. And he's the co editor of the fifth edition of Essential Practices, which is a palliative medicine book series. Wow. He's done a lot. He's so impressive. And he's just so genuine, right? Yes. And down to earth. And that's that's what I think people are gonna love mm-hmm. about this conversation. So without further ado, here's Miguel. Here's Miguel. Welcome,
0: Miguel. We are so excited and grateful to have you on our podcast. Thank you for accepting our invitation. It's my pleasure. And uh, we like to start out with a little banter and fun. And one of the things we noticed is that you happen to live in one of our favorite cities to visit, uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And uh, one of the things that we love about that city is all the great restaurants. And every time we go to Philly, it's like, where are we going to go next? Where are we going to go next? If if you're a foodie, we definitely think this is the place to live. What do you think?
2: Oh, I totally agree. This is a city that's rich with restaurants. It's it's just overwhelming that you won't be able to get through them all in your lifetime, I have to say.
0: Uh, <laughs> I agree with it. And then the problem we have whenever we
1: go, we keep going back to our favorite ones. So yeah, there's <laughs> creatures of habit.
2: <laughs> Me too.
1: When you find something good, stick with it, right?
0: Yeah, Indeed. for sure.
1: Well, the first time you and I ever met, this is
0: Michelle, Uh, we were both attending the National Academy of Medicine's Global Forum on Innovation and Health Professional Education, and I think it was back in 2016, Miguel, uh, that this happened, and Patricia Cuff, who's their activity director, asked if I would kick off their strategic planning with a Introduction to polarity thinking because she was really intrigued by the concept and thought it would be helpful for the members and the sponsors to be exposed to a different way of thinking rather than always looking at things as a problem solving approach, but to kind of introduce a and in both way of thinking we look at all the challenges in healthcare. And so I had the opportunity to do that, and I clearly remember you, of all the people in that room, coming up and shaking my hand and saying, I really enjoyed that. That was really interesting.
2: <laughs> right. Right. That was very impactful, and, and that caused me to you know, look a little bit more into the whole idea of polarity thinking and how, how it applies not just to work life, but even my home life. It was really, um, really transformative in a lot of ways at that time.
0: Yeah. In fact, uh, the podcast release, we released today was on self and other, and we talk a lot about the personal polarities that we all you know have to leverage and manage as well. So have you had any other exposure to polarity thinking since that first introduction?
2: You know, not in the formal way, but I, it's one of those things that after you uh, introduce that concept, I see it everywhere. You know, it's one of those things where you, you can't help but think of that construct as you look at other interactions you have at work challenges at home and otherwise, I I thought it was really, um, really powerful.
1: Yeah. Do do you recall, like, what was it kind of as you were sitting there in the audience listening, what was it that just really struck you? Was there the topic or just the concept itself? Or was there something that really just spoke to you?
2: It resonated with me because I I see it every day in, in things that I do in my work and also at home. And certainly as you work across professions, when it comes to healthcare teams, uh, it, it leads to success in terms of reaching out to other professions and uh, and being able to collaborate in a true team fashion, for sure.
1: Oh, yeah. that We have found that as well. And I think the thing about polarities, right, is it's that welcoming. It's opening up the conversation, right? Being open and receptive to an opposing perspective. Um, right? That kind of helps us all um, get on the same page and just really step into those kind of interprofessional experiences in a new way. So I agree no with No doubt. You. Yeah. And,
2: and the other thing, Michelle, that, that also resonated with me in terms of that as a as sort of a principle for leadership uh, is it, it harkens back to the best class I ever took as a fourth-year medical student in Chicago. Right? I took a year of improv at Second City. <laughs> and um that there's a lot of similar principles because your idea when you're when you're working in an, in an improv setting is is you, your your goal is to make the person that you're working with look as good as possible and that the answer to everything is yes and there's never a wrong answer. Um, so I see a lot of similarities there and maybe that's why it resonated with me so powerfully at the time.
0: Oh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I I took a improv class once, too, and was really struck by that. And that's what it is. It's it's not either or, or, but, and everything stops. It's yes, and let's look at this perspective. So that's a great,
1: great lesson. I love it. Yeah, I've never heard anybody bring that forth, though. Thanks for that. Sure. <laughs> that's great. Well, yeah. you know, you mentioned, too, about um, polarities at home and just what it means to you. And, you know, you know we're really... Um, just avid believers in the need to have clinician well-being and, you know, just strong supporters of the whole effort that's happening right now nationally around clinician well-being and resilience. And, and, you know, we had some conversation about this a while back. I think it's been about a year and a half or so that we talked with you about, you know, just work-life balance and just that whole dynamic, Right. And we were so appreciative to have that time with you because we just, we really wanted to know what the realities are for clinicians these days, right? And uh, you were very helpful in enlightening us around some of that. And I just wondered, you know, and then you also also wrote a a commentary, right, for the National Academies of Medicine for their perspective paper uh, about your experience. And so I wondered if you would be willing to share a little bit, Miguel, about your personal experience with burnout.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I know that's, um, that paper has been referenced a few times, and, I, and it will be to this podcast, but that was the beginning of my self-realization at, at this point in my career that, that my, my burnout journey was formative in the work that I'm doing right now. And, um, and in that article, I, I talk about, it, I called it 100 Years of Rain, and it was, a, it was a time in Seattle at the University of Washington when I was training as an intern where um, I hit rock bottom and and this is before duty hours were truly implemented um and it was one of those things where uh it was just an expectation silently or otherwise that you worked through these problems on your own um if you had uh even illness physical illness you were sort of there was an expectation that if you didn't show up to work and do the work someone else would have to do it for you and that was a sign of a sign of failure you know personal failure and um and so I, I go on to talk about how at one point, at my lowest point, I actually was taking uh, a history from a patient in the emergency department at Harvard View Hospital. Um, and this was in the, my ICU rotation, my intensive care unit rotation. Um, and in the middle of doing this, this is the 10th patient I had admitted that night. Uh, in the middle of doing that and taking the history, I actually fell asleep while the patient was talking. And I woke up and I looked at my notes and it looked just scribble. I had scribble on the paper. And I was so embarrassed. I was so exhausted. Um, uh, my my senior resident just looked at me with disgust and sent me to bed, and he ended up doing the rest of the work that night. And it was the next day uh, after, after rounds when I went home and I said, you know what, if I just get into a, a, a majorly, well, maybe a moderate accident, maybe I will uh, not have to go to work tomorrow. I had gotten to that point, and I was yeah. a pretty happy-go-lucky guy. I never thought of myself as being, you know, a a complainer or overly uh, uh, emotional or or even depressed. But I can tell you in retrospect, I was depressed. I was burned out. And for me to get to the point where I was thinking about hurting myself to get out of work, wow, that was powerful. And and when we came to the academies shortly thereafter, um, or shortly thereafter the onset of the the wellness initiative with with the National Academies, Sonny Kishore asked me, uh, I had mentioned that I had a personal experience with this, and he asked me to write about it, and and I, and that was the result of it. I'm really glad that I did because it, it ended up being very therapeutic for me, and it's also allowed me to bridge my personal story with the work that I'm doing here.
1: Yeah, it's a very powerful story, Miguel, and you know I think it just helps people. Also, it takes courage number one. So thank you for sharing your story because it does take courage mm-hmm. to you know, acknowledge those kinds of experiences in our life. And it also opens it up for others to do that as well and for them to know they're not alone. And so I think that's just, it's very, very powerful.
2: Thanks.
0: Yeah. And, you know, as uh, I read the story again um, in preparation for our podcast, uh, Tracy and I both were at critical care together for years. And I just had flashbacks of all the residents and fellows we worked with and the empathy I know I felt with. They were exhausted. You could just see it and feel mm-hmm, it. Mm-hmm. So,
2: Yeah, yeah. I'd I love to think that that's getting better. I, I do think it is, but we're, we still have a long way to go.
0: Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do. And I know you're busy working on things. So let's talk about that next. (laughs) So in your role at the National Board of Medical Examiners, um, you know, you had, you know, you're also a member of the National Academy of Medicine's uh, Coalition for Clinician Wellbeing, and that you also have really put together a task force and are doing work. And we would love to get an update on where that work is at today.
2: Yeah, I'm happy to do that. And as I mentioned, that the experiences I've had as a clinician, like like the both of you have had, um, certainly lead to the motivation to do this kind of work. And and here at the board, we, we had realized as an assessment organization uh, about two years ago um, that a lot of our colleagues in the House of Medicine, as we call it, and, and other organizations were starting to pay attention to this in a more formal and a more um, meaningful way, uh, whether it was the AAMC, uh, the ACGME, these other organizations. And, and I had proposed to the leadership here that we we should do something. You know, the uh, the National Academies, uh, the coalition had asked for statements of um, commitments to the to the to the cause, and and that was the beginning of it all. And so, what we had decided was um, that it's not enough just to do something that other people are doing in this field. What is it that's related to our work that would be meaningful? To the to the folks that we serve, specifically the public, uh, that's unique. That's also unique to the kind of work we do, which is an assessment. So, what we uh, what we proposed and what we started was is the Renew Project, which is reimagining exams. NBME's effort on wellness. We love acronyms around here, by the way. So <laughs> we had, had to of come course. up with something. And um, um so what we did uh was uh brought a group of experts together that work in this area and said uh we want to look specifically at how uh the stress of high-stakes exams, like the US USMLE step one exam, which is uh which is uniformly considered a very uh formative and stressful experience, but also sort of a rite of passage. Um how how is the preparation for that, how is the um how is that exam itself affecting students well being? And that was the fundamental question we wanted to answer so that we might provide, uh, uh, going forward, recommendations for improving that process, improving that experience for students. Um, So uh, in the end, through a deliberative process, we brought experts from from various organizations, uh, faculty that did this work across the country, and, and came up with nine types of research projects that we could do, four of which we've already started operationalizing. Uh, to look at these things. Now, two of these studies are qualitative in nature where we're, we're actually bringing students into the building and doing interviews with them and talking about their experience and, and getting it fresh from their mouths about what it's like to go through preparations for step one. Uh, and the other side of this is a quantitative study where we're taking, uh, where we're doing surveys of students uh, and also using data that we have from graduation questionnaires from the AMC and matching it with. Um, uh, their performance on the exam. And one of, one of the most important outputs of this so far, and all these studies are still underway, but preliminary data shows that um, the, the most well students and even the, the, those that are showing to be the least well in terms of uh, burnout and measures of, of stress and the, and the like, um, it doesn't seem to be affecting ultimately their score. Uh, and that's that's a good thing, I think, in terms of what the test is measuring. That's really important. But it still doesn't answer the question about the journey. And so that's what those other studies are aiming to do.
1: Wow, I think that's just, that is so profound. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just really significant mm-hmm. because, boy, you know, you remember those tests, those big Tests, right? And they just freak you out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) They do. Oh, yeah, they still do.
1: (laughs) And I guess, you know, I I think this is really great that you're doing this um, because, you know, it wasn't anything that crossed my mind.
0: Yeah.
1: Right? That this would be a part of the well being initiative, this is something to look at. So I think it's just groundbreaking. And I want to just say, um, you know, good for you to do more than just submit a statement. Right, good for you yeah. to really take this as an opportunity to do something meaningful and impactful, um, rather than just submitting a, a statement in support of clinician well-being and resilience. I think it's great.
0: Yeah, and and related to what you're you're bringing to healthcare, right? What your role is, because um, oftentimes you keep hearing the same things over and over again. So now it's like we're getting somewhere. We're starting to look at it from all kinds of angles. Mm-hmm.
2: No doubt. And and thank you for that. I, I think, um, you know, even in this day and age where you have practitioners of all types that are still taking tests, you know, this, this, this work could be, I'd like to think it'd be useful, even for those of us like myself, I, I have to keep up three certificates every few years. And I still find tests stressful, even though I work in an organization that makes those tests, it, it, that never goes away. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's so true. <laughs> I'm just sitting here thinking about that. Holy moly. Oh man. Yeah, there, there's a, a, a lot of, um, a lot of potential here, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of potential impact in it.. Yeah. And I think to your point, right, I think those of us that have experienced some burnout um, are you know really stepping up passionate about making a difference and doing something to really support people, students and clinicians, and to really uncover what is the truth and what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. Yeah.
2: And, you know, one thing I've learned on this journey, that's, it's not just about how do we make individuals more resilient to work in the systems we have, but thinking even broader about how can we affect change more broadly in in the system care um, to to make them more uh, amenable to the wellness of the providers, because you know as we know, there's if our providers aren't well, uh, then they're not going to provide good care. So one thing I also have to acknowledge, there's burnout in all kinds of professions, even outside of healthcare. But the one thing that makes what we do very unique is that our health is directly tied to that of our patients. So we have, I think, a, a exponentially. Uh, Increased responsibility to to make sure that we're taking care of ourselves as providers.
1: Yeah, that's the this is the one thing that I I think is um, makes it so high stake. Right, it's such a high stakes game because there's lives at risk. Mm-hmm. If we're not at the top of our game, lives are at risk.
2: Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and more, there's more and more literature now showing that if if a provider isn't well, uh, it leads to pa- patient safety outcomes that are not good. Yeah. it leads to errors.
1: It does. It does. So, and so that's, we all have a stake in that. We sure do, yes, right? We, do. we yep. do, because someday we may be that patient, right?
2: Yep, no doubt.
1: Yep, yep. Well, are there are there any other ways, um, Miguel, that, you know, you've been engaged with the National Academy of Medicine around this coalition? I mean, you're doing a lot, you know, with the NBME, um, but in regards to just other um, avenues or other ways have you have you engaged in that work in another way?
2: Well, certainly um, the work, Michelle. You and I, I think we said in the in the health professions education yep. uh, global forum, and and these things also, in addition to being in other professions, are are certainly a worldwide phenomenon we're finding too. And and certainly we've had discussions with the forum about um, how accreditation. And education worlds should be working in concert to address things related to uh, outcomes of students, including well-being. You know the quadruple aim, uh, which was uh, built on the triple aim uh, related to healthcare outcomes, cost, and um, um, and and the fourth being provider wellness is now a part of that. So. Um, so I think the forum in many different areas is starting to address this and realizing that, that the provider and the and the, the wellness of the provider is directly related to their efficacy in providing quality care. Mm-hmm. I think that's so important.
0: Yeah, and to that point, uh, Miguel, um, I'll put in the show, no- show notes the workshop that you and I attended last April that had several different ways of thinking about this as well, both national, international, Um, having a design thinking approach, having different ways that we can take a look at it. And there's uh, proceedings that came out of that meeting that might be helpful as well.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Agreed.
0: And of course, we look at it through a polarity lens. So to the point that you made earlier, uh, this is a significant problem, but underlying it are many polarities. And one of them um, that is on our minds quite a bit is that you do have to approach it both from an individual accountability perspective and a system perspective. And so we were just curious if you could um, if you could share with our listeners some system interventions that you think would help uh, alleviate uh, depression and burnout with
2: clinicians. Wow, that could take a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes. much we could do, <laughs> and and you're right about that polarity. Um, I think it's easy, depending on where you sit, whether it's as a provider, as a student, or in the C-suite. We all have different polarities when it comes to dealing with this issue or mm-hmm. or conceptualizing it. And you know, I think the cynic might say, "Well, all we're doing today in this day and age is is trying to make students more resilient again to work in a broken system." And not working hard enough on changing the system, um, but you know, again, if you if you if you take a, a different view of that, uh, we have to work on both sides of that. And one thing I've learned in the work we're doing is 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 I'm not convinced yet that the, uh, the the high stakes exams here or in any setting are necessarily causing burnout, but are they in fact a stress test for students that might be at risk? Yeah. Um, and so maybe we're unmasking something. We're realizing that there's lots of individuals out there whose resilience tanks aren't as full as they think they are going into a stressful environment, like preparing for an exam or like caring for a sick patient, even or name any stressor you might you might uh, encounter in the spectrum of your healthcare career. Um, so so. Even the polarity i thinking about beyond the level of system and individual and what that means when we look at these things is so important to try to get the right answers. So, you know, we could tick off many, many boxes of what might be contributing to this. It's the exams, it's the cost, it's it's how much tuition is at medical schools uh, and and nursing schools and health profession schools in this country. Um, and then system-wide in terms of what we all know about providers in this country in terms of what's required and documenting in the electronic health record and how that's changed things in the past decade. You know, um, As I go around the country and talk to students and faculty, the thing I hear most often uh, regarding how things have changed, they'll say, well, the residents have it much better now. We're taking better care of them. But me as a faculty member, we don't have duty hours. I go home, I put my kids to bed, and I'm writing in the medical record until midnight. Um, Where's, you know, where's my duty hour? Where are my duty hours? Um, So these are all so complicated. Um, And I I think there's, you can't just do one thing. You have to think about the whole.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that is so true. And, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think we're focused a lot on the clinicians, right, and the students. But I was, just, I was just thinking right before you said that, what about the faculty? Like, I've not heard anything about faculty, right? Or yeah. we don't hear much about the leaders either. So, you know, as all the attention shifts to the clinicians, and, and I'm not saying this is not important, it's critical. You can't forget there are other people supporting them as well, right? And if we pile everything on the leader, <laughs> right, or take the stress off of one and put it on another, we're going to end up. Right And the downside of that, so we have to be thinking mm-hmm. everybody, right? Everybody, not sure. just one group, right? Right. And there is no silver bullet here. There is no quick fix because it's not it's not just a problem, right? There's multiple dynamics that we need to be looking at and thinking about um, as we look at the systems and we look at the individuals.
2: Yeah, it's multifaceted, and, and um, the two things I'll say about faculty: uh, one is um, that we, we need to think about them as a, as a big driver in this system because they're the role models for today's trainees. So if you have burned out role models and teachers, the chances of you following in those footsteps are pretty high. Um, additionally, uh, I do have optimism. And I say this because a few months ago I was asked to attend and, and judge um, a um, – a research symposium thrown by the, uh, the Academy for Independent Academic Medical Centers uh, out in, um, at their meeting where they were talking about wellness and burnout. And as I listened to these residents and trainees talk about what they're doing, um, it gave me great hope because these are our future faculty. Mm-hmm. These are the folks that I feel like they aren't going to put up with the system that I went through, that we went through. Right? You know, they're they're being raised with the mindset that it's not okay to show up to work. You know, with a fever or show up unwell because you're just not in the right place. They're they're being trained and they're they're being born of a system that I think has become uh, more um, more accepting of the idea that if the physician or the provider is not well then your patients won't be well. And I think that gives me great hope. Um, so um, so we'll see where that leads us. I think that's really important. And the only other thing I'll say about that is that um, it's, it's, it, it's no longer a sign of weakness to, to, to ask for help. I think that's becoming more and more clear where we, we have to normalize the idea that if you're going to go get help because you're feeling burned out or you're feeling depressed, it should be as it should be as routine as going to get your teeth cleaned. It should be as routine as going to get your checkup. You know, I should just go to the counselor every month because that's what's expected of me in my job yeah. and that's what my patients expect of me.
0: Absolutely. We have to get rid of that stigma. It's it's mm-hmm. yes. it's a barrier,
1: right? Well, and I think that's a big part of the individual accountability too, right? Like you can change the systems, but individually we have to adjust our mindsets too, uh-huh. right? And we have to have an environment that supports that, right? right. Which means it's it's welcomed. Um, that it, it almost is a part of the process that that you have routine counseling visits. Like it's just a part of how you're educated, right? You go in exactly. and you have a conversation. Exactly. Not that it's something you add on when you're getting into trouble, but that you're having conversations and taking that kind of... Um, Interest in yourself and accountability for your own thinking, your wellness, your self-care. And that's a part of it is to have a conversation, right? To reflect with somebody and, you know, how how is what I'm experiencing impacting me? And sometimes you need that external view, right? Well, I never thought about this before, but that's like, um, you know, social worker
0: and counselors, they have supervisors to kind of, they carry so much burden of everyone else. They actually have a methodology in place where they can go and talk about it Mm -hmm. with their peers. And I never knew about that, but when I heard about it and I was uh, a clinician at the time at the bedside, I'm like, that's really kind of a great idea just to kind of keep you in check and have a place where you can kind of share your feelings and be vulnerable and to have yeah. it be a norm across all professions might be a really good idea. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um,
2: I have to say, I mean, so along those lines, I've, in my clinical practice, which is uh, a day a week, I still do over at the university of Pennsylvania, our palliative care for, I do palliative care. Um, our palliative care program has a full time social worker just for us and the providers in the hospital, <laughs> which is yes, pretty amazing. That um, is so, and that's that's not very common.
1: Um, no, it's not. It's not very common. But but good for you. Um, you know, and and there should be more of that, right? Yeah. And I think in some a lot of the organizations, as I you know, I was in a lot of different organizations over the years as a consultant and um, helping with the implementation of the electronic health record and interprofessional practice. And, you know, I would hear there there is more of that attention and more uh, support services for, uh, you know, chaplains, social workers being available for the clinicians, right? And I think too, um, you know, you're just hearing more of it. So it's, I think it's getting to be more of a a uh, standard or, a, you know, a common occurrence, which is yeah. great.
2: More hope. And that's, and that's a good sign. Um, yeah. and I'll, I'll, be honest with you. I, I went into this work with a, with some degree of cynicism that, um, that I think we were, and I think to still some degree, we're still in the place in, in healthcare that everybody feels like they have to do something. But, but what's challenging is knowing what that thing is and what that what really works, you know, is it really just enough to have a counselor on staff if only the people that realize they need help go see them versus the ones that don't know they need help you know is it enough to just have availability of yoga you know every other week or or mindfulness training or these are all wonderful things but what we really haven't done the work to do is is what really works and what makes sense and that's one of the reasons with the renew work we didn't want to start with just doing something. We wanted to start with doing some deliberate work, and research on exactly what is the problem that we're trying to address from where we sit. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what gives Michelle and I a lot of hope, is looking at things through a polarity lens, because we know that there are dynamics, these interdependent pairs. And you can take action on one of the poles, right? On one side of the dynamic. And we know you'll fail if you don't know that it's interdependent with another (laughs) element, right? Like self and others, right? Yeah. And if we're just, uh, you know, if we're not, don't have that duality of thinking, if we don't give attention to both, then we know over, it's guaranteed 100% of the time you're going to end up in the downside of that and experiencing negative consequences. So where we can identify some really key crux polarities in this well-being and resilience, right, initiative, um, and to be able to measure, right, what the what the impact of those action steps are and how well we're maintaining that balance, whether it's as an individual or an organization uh, in the systems and structures that we're changing. You know, I think that gives us a lot of hope that there are ways to measure. There are ways to look at this in a way that really can um, – help develop that kind of virtuous cycle, moving you towards that, right, that greater purpose, um, and Mm -hmm. keeping you out of the downside.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And realizing one size doesn't fit all necessarily what, what, what you're doing at your place in, in, um, you know, San Francisco won't be the same as the folks in, uh, in Fargo, North Dakota or the folks in new England. I mean, it's like politics is local. So is interventions for wellness. Um, because not everybody has the same challenges in their system necessarily. Um, so, so that's why we always felt like it wasn't just enough to do an online module that someone's going to yes. click through and, and not have the motivation to engage or, you know, just do some sort of intervention. We, we really need to study exactly what it is we want to target. That's right.
1: It, it reminds me, too, of our conversation, Michelle, with um, Dr. Bern Melnick, right, who was, uh, you know, over the OSU. She's the first chief wellness Right officer, and um, just her conversation about it has to be culture, right? So there, it has to be baked into the culture of organizations and institutions that wellness is expected, well-being is expected, and this is who and how we are, and how we operate, and how we support each other. And mm-hmm. uh, you know, so it's that it's it's not just a quick fix. Oh. Uh, it takes intention, and um, it has to be at the local level. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: I totally agree. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Miguel, thank you for that awesome conversation, great insights, and uh, we love learning about your journey and being on the journey with you. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any closing remarks that you'd like to share with our audience before we sign off today?
2: Well, um, I guess my what I might say in closing is that um, – is sort of a summary of, of kind of what I've alluded to before is that this work is personal for me and, and being someone who works at NBME who also has a foot in practice, who's, who's been through a burnout journey, it, it is, it is personal on many levels. And, and I think there's more, to, there's more to come in this work. I think people should stay tuned for what's happening here uh, at the board. And, and the kind of work that's coming out of this is going to be disseminated shortly through a variety of venues, including, um, some manuscripts and papers, as well as uh, some more public announcements and, and presentations at some meetings, and, and and we certainly hope to be able to share this even uh, even beyond uh, the House of Medicine, but it, but with other professions that have interest, and um, and I think that's 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 it. Wow. I'm happy to be a part of this. I'm most happy to talk to you all, and it, um, and thinking about polarity in the context of this work. And the work that we've done together, Michelle, I think is, is really exciting.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your story with our audience. And, you know, I just I just uh, you're, it's very inspiring, Miguel, that you took, um, you know, an experience that you've had and you have really used that as a lever, right, to move the world to make a difference to have a larger impact um from your experience and so I appreciate that and thanks for sharing that with our audience. Yeah. My pleasure.
2: Is,
0: yeah, and this is Michelle. I would just say uh being a physician, respiratory therapist, and nurse on this podcast, one of the things I really appreciate uh, in your work as well is your whole interprofessional lens and how it all comes down to that. As clinicians, we're all humans, and we're all here to support each other. So I think that shines through with your story and your work as well. I want to thank you for that.
2: Well, thank you. And I think um, it's it's important that we all realize that we, have, we all share the same interest in mind, when we all have one thing in common, that is the patient. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: No matter where we work, from top to bottom, that's who we work for. That's right. That
1: can be said better. (laughs) Good job. (laughs) (laughs) It's a great way to close. Thank you so much, Miguel. Look forward to seeing you in the future, and maybe we'll have you back on the podcast. Yeah.
2: I would love to. Thank you.
1: Yep. Bye-bye.
0: tuning in today if you found our conversation insightful or helpful please share this episode with others you think might benefit also go out to itunes
1: and rate the show and share a review because we really like those positive ones wink wink you can access today's show notes and downloads at www.missinglogic.com forward slash podcast If you wanna learn more about polarities in healthcare or how you might manage them in your organization, you can contact us for a free consultation. Just go to our website at www.missinglogic.com.